just, just want to say again, personally for myself, I've been so, so blessed in the last several weeks studying this, God's wisdom, studying his wisdom when it comes to the family and how the family is to function. Husbands and wives and fathers and mothers and children and, uh, and how good it is. And yet, as I've been seeing the goodness of it and how wonderful it is, I don't know if you've had the same response. It struck me how, how little we see this around us. And maybe we could look inward at our own lives as well. I think we all have room for a whole lot of growth, I think, in this, in this area. And it starts with understanding. It starts with seeing the truth of God's word. So last week, Paul said to the wives, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. Because the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church. He himself, the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives must be subject to their husbands in everything. Now, if wives are to be subject to their husbands as their head. And when we hear the word head, one of the primary uh, meanings of that word has to do with authority. So if wives are to be subject to their husbands as their head and authority in everything, then husbands, Paul says, are to love their wives. Ephesians 5.25, husbands, Love your wives. And I would love to be sitting with, out there with you and hearing someone up here say that to me directly, but understand that I'm hearing it myself. Now, if the husband is the head of the wife, I want to ask you this question. Shouldn't he be diligently and faithfully exercising this headship? Don't we assume that this headship, this authority, is not at all something for which the husband should apologize or for which he should feel in any way whatsoever embarrassed? The real question is, why has the husband been given this headship? For all of our qualifying of headship these days, You'd almost wonder why in the world God even gave it. To what end in your handout, husbands, did God give you headship? Why? It's with this question in mind that we pay special attention to the fact that Paul doesn't actually say, husbands, exercise your headship. He doesn't say that. What he says is, husbands, love Your wives. Okay. But, here's the thing. This is not so simple. Couldn't Paul have also said to the wives, wives, love your husbands, right? It it goes both ways. It cuts both ways, right? So if subjection is not mutual, the husband is not to subject himself to his wife. The wife is to subject himself to her husband. So that's not mutual. But isn't love mutual? Isn't love completely reciprocal? We could say 50-50, love, love. Or 100-100, love, love. Right? Paul wrote to all Christians at the beginning of this chapter. He said, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love towards one another. Wives love your husbands. Husbands love your wives. And wives love everyone else. And husbands love everyone else. Just as also Christ loved us and gave himself up for us an offering and sacrifice to God for a fragrant aroma. So here's the question, and you can guess the blank, I'm assuming. Why does Paul tell husbands specifically to love their wives? Now, it's interesting, in Titus, he does call wives to be husband lovers. It's one word, and it's a different, it's, it's a different word for love combined with the word for man or husband. So it's like husband lovers. 
So certainly, Paul recognized that wives should love their husbands. But there's something unique going on here. This is not, this is not the same thing. So why does he tell husbands specifically? He singles out you husbands. And he says, you husbands, you husbands, you love your wives. Is that partly in order to help keep the husband's headship in check? Does like Paul realize what I just said? Oh, I, I just said to the wife that the husband is her head. Now, I know the husband was listening to that, and now I've got to kind of undo that for the husband. I've got to make sure the husband knows and doesn't get carried away with his headship. Is it to keep his headship under control? In other words, I, I already did this, okay, but it's there in your handout. Yes, you're the head, but this is something of a necessary evil, so I don't want to emphasize that when I'm talking to you. You don't need to be thinking about your headship. You just need to be focused on loving your wife. And so what this commentator says, who I really respect, and again, I mean, this is so pervasive in our Christian culture, it's not hard to find examples of this from people that I very highly respect. But this commentator says, it's representative of many. Paul, he says, Paul does not hear or elsewhere, anywhere else for that matter, does Paul exhort husbands to exercise their headship. Instead, he, they are urged repeatedly to love their wives. We have, this, this subtly creates a mammoth problem. You see the separation that's being made between headship and love. So I ask the husbands again, and wives, listen in, because essentially this matters equally to you. I ask you husbands, what's the point of your headship? What's the point? Is it really just uh, that practical last resort in the case of a stalemate? Do, do I really not need to be exhorted to faithfully exercise my headship, to diligently every day be exercising my headship? I drew a distinction between what Paul chooses to say and what he doesn't say. He chooses to say, husbands, love your wives, he, not husbands, exercise your headship. But here's the question. What exactly is the relationship between headship and love? And I'm asking you to think about that for a second, just a second. What is the relationship between headship and love? Between, particularly, the husband exercising his headship actively and the husband actively loving his wife. Many would deny today that there's really any relationship at all. Insofar as headship is a position... Okay, the key here. The key here is to see that the husband exists in the marriage relationship as the head, authority. Not for a single moment can he ever escape being the head. So this is what I tell uh, prospective husbands when we're talking and, and talking about marriage and the wedding is coming up. I remind him... That once he's married, he's the head and he can't escape. And he cannot escape for it for a fraction of a second. Insofar as headship is a position relative to another, in this case your wife, then the husband exists, he exists in this spot, in this position, perpetually. All the time. He He doesn't step into this position at certain times. He doesn't suddenly and momentarily become the head when a stalemate arises. Instead, in the context of the marriage relationship, he lives and breathes headship in the sense that the head is who he is. Is that is that is that not radical? revolutionary, just the thought. We could almost just send us all home right now and we could all just spend the next week contemplating that. It's that big of a deal. What this means practically then, let's take it more practically. 
Every interaction that I ever have with my wife, and we have, right, hundreds of them, right, every day maybe, I don't know. But every single one of those that I ever have with my wife takes place, it happens inside of this context of a relationship of authority, headship, and subjection. Now, I ask you, how could it be otherwise? I would like you to explain to me, in a sense, how could it not be that way if indeed I am the head and I'm, I cannot stop being that, it's who I am in the relationship, and if indeed my wife is called to be always adorned, never not adorned, with that meek and peaceable spirit that enables her to be subject to me in everything. And I just want to say that my wife and I, Andrea and I, have talked much about these things, and, think, and I was able to say it at our breakfast table this morning, and I've said it to Andrea, that I am so grateful for her, and, and, and that, that with, for all our flaws and all of our troubles that we have, as any marriage does, that I can preach this as something that I've, I've been working by the Spirit to experience and to live out experientially. Again, far from perfectly, but, but I have, we have support in this. So I'm together, um, and I, you, can, you can ask her about whatever the ways I need to figure stuff out, because so, I'm sure she can tell you that. I fail in this, and after last Sunday, again, as maybe many of you husbands did, if you took this message to your wives seriously, you went out and you said, I am so sorry, right? So that's what, that's what I did, so, especially since I preached it, right? that, that's, that's more of a trouble, but. So, every single interaction I have is that way. She's always adorned with a meek and peaceable spirit, right, in this perfect, ideal, wonderful, non-sin-infested world. Of course, because of our sinful fallenness, now what do we have to do? We have to work hard to wrap our minds around this and be careful to understand what I mean and what I don't mean because I don't think the problem is just the word of God. I think the problem is our sin in our culture. So we hear this kind of stuff and all we think of is, but what about? Or, do I not need to qualify this? Well, yes, unfortunately, we do. We do need to. So let me say what this doesn't mean. This doesn't mean that my wife uh, and, and I, that we, husbands and wives, are not also just spending our days just enjoying one another's company as friends and as lovers. This doesn't mean that my wife isn't managing and directing the household with complete freedom. I put freedom in quotation marks because I mean complete freedom, but I also mean complete freedom under my headship and the authority that always exists. So managing and directing the household with complete freedom, but freedom... Because, because why? Because using the word of Proverbs, my heart trusts in her. And because I know that she will deal bountifully with me for good and not evil all the days of our life together. And how many of you husbands are, just wish you could get up here and, and say the same thing? And you would if, if, if we disinvite you, right? This doesn't mean that I don't seek my wife's counsel. Or, or, or listen to it when it's offered unsolicited, right? Or that we don't always work together to attain agreement in all things. And yet, given these realities, still every single interaction that we have together takes place within the context of a relationship of authority, headship, and subjection. This just is. But, but let me say one more thing. Not only is it, it should be. It should be. And so we've seen what this doesn't mean. Let's try to understand more positively what this does mean. And it's still going to be a, a negative positive. Okay? First, to start out. This does mean that within the context of the husband-wife relationship, the words that I speak to my wife and the way that I speak them carry a certain destructive power that my wife's words to me 
even if they are sinful, do not carry. Now, how many of your husbands, wives are upset at this? How many of you know, do you want your wives to be just as destructive as your husbands? Right? Maybe, you know, so it's a level playing ground when you have a fight or something. But what I'm suggesting here is that I, I may, and this is what I see, this is where husbands we can go, even in our childishness sometimes. I want to be able to speak to my wife only as the equal that she truly is. We talked about that. There's, there's, there's equality in three fundamental ways. But the reality is I can never escape the reality that my words to her will always or should always be heard within a certain context of inequality. That's, that's there. And so husbands, we cannot speak with impunity. We cannot say that, well, you said that to me like that. I guess I can say the same thing to you like that. Not necessarily. Because of the nature of the relationship. This helps to explain why in Colossians, Paul exhorts husbands not to be harsh with their wives. And why Peter exhorts husbands to live with their wives according to knowledge. As with a weaker, and weaker is not derogatory there. It's hard to grasp the word. We could say as with the more delicate, the more beautiful, the more feminine, essentially. Vessel, since she is a woman. That's not to say that that our wives are not incredibly strong in many ways. Paul's point is not that men are more prone to being harsh. He doesn't say, now don't be harsh with your wife, because I know it's what all men are like. That's what men naturally tend to, is they're just naturally harsh more than women. No, his point is this. In the context of a relationship of authority and subjection, it is the one in authority. It is the husband whose words and actions can have an especially destructive power. A lot of times this isn't necessarily realized because the husband is not exercising diligently his headship. But if this is so, the opposite is equally true. And so here we, we, we saw the one side of the coin, now we flip it and we see the other side. Headship and authority is given to the husband. Here's why in order that it might be the uniquely empowering context for loving his wife. Now, I was going over the sermon this morning. When I was finished, I put it down and I said, I cannot wait to preach this. This is so good. God's word is so perfect and beautiful. Paul has just said two times, that wives should be subject to their husbands and once that the husband is the head of the wife. So when the very next thing Paul says is, husbands, husbands, love your wives, what we should hear is this. Um, you heads, you leaders, you authorities in the marriage relationship, love your wives. Which is to say, exercise your headship. The authority that you have been given for all its worth. For all its worth. If the wife is to be always adorned with that meek and peaceable spirit which enables her to be subject to her husband and everything, then the husband is to always live and breathe headship, to be always adorned with headship, you might say. We are not to think of Love is that which qualifies our headship or keeps our headship in check at all. What does love keep in check? What does love keep in check? Our sin, not our headship. Okay, Keeps in check our sin, which can abuse our headship, certainly. So we are not to think of love as that which qualifies our headship, but rather as that which is empowered, as that which is given a unique character and effectiveness by our headship. Headship and love are in this context bound up together. 
So what does this imply for the wife who is to be subject to her husband and everything? If you're doing the, if you're doing the math here, you've got a, a question, right? The wife is to sacrificially love her husband too, right? Even as she's been loved by Christ. There's a real sense in which the wife, as a Christian, should be laying down her life for her husband. Nevertheless, the wife has not been given the same unique context for the expression of this love. And so her love for her husband, in this particular, I'm just trying to draw something of a distinction, it does not have the same unique character or nature as her husband's love for her. It's not lessened, and I'm not saying that there's not that general, biblical, Christian, sacrificial love that's always mutual, and that there's not an affectionate love or a romantic love that's equal, or all of those things that's equally powerful. But this is different. So by God's design, there is something uniquely wonderful and effectual husbands about love in the context of headship. Now that, that should excite you. Now, now you say, whoa, I, I'm, I'm the head. Look, look what that enables in terms of love. And so we see that there is a sense in which even love in the marriage relationship is not entirely a mutual thing. Husbands, love your wives. As also Christ loved the church. And you know, Paul repeatedly emphasizes, because, and this is what I love, because we're not coming here to this seminar on marriage relationships. This is the gospel. It's what it comes back to. And so Paul brings us back there repeatedly with this comparison. Husbands, love your wives as also Christ loved the church. Just so ought husbands to love their own wives. Just as also Christ does the church. So I ask you this, how has Christ loved the church? How did he love the church? And let's take it a step further. How has Christ's headship provided the unique empowering context for his love? What does Christ's headship have to do with Christ's love? Husbands, love your wives as also Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. How has Christ loved the church? By giving himself up. In your handout, key words here. These are the words I want to emphasize for her. So let's just come back to the beauty of our salvation, of our being loved by Christ. By offering himself up for her as a sacrifice and bearing the full curse of the law in her place. That's what, that's what Christ did for his wife, for his bride. Every husband is called to love his wife as also Christ loved the church. And now you get a little bit more of what that looks like because now you're saying, I cannot do that without headship. I can't do it without headship. Wives, too, should love their husbands sacrificially. But again, when this kind of love is exercised in the context of headship, something changes, something's different in your handout. We come to understand what this difference is when we meditate, when, when you think and meditate further on Christ's love for the church. So here's the thing. When Christ gave himself up for the church, he wasn't checking or limiting the exercise of his headship. He wasn't saying, well, I am the head, but I'm not going to exercise that headship now. I'm just going to be loving He was, in fact, exercising his headship to the fullest. He was making the fullest possible use of his headship. It was his headship which made the expression of his love so uniquely and powerfully in your handout effectual. If Christ isn't the head, what does his death on the cross matter for us? But it was his headship that gave to that expression of love its effectual power. Husbands, love your wives as also Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, cleansing her with the washing of water in the word, that he might present to himself glorious the church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she might be holy 
and blameless. So, now let me, again, let's clarify. Because some, some, and I can see why, we tend to go this direction. Well, the husband should be washing his wife with the word. Well, if you mean by that, husband, it's good for him to read his Bible with his wife. That's good. That's good. But no, it's not the husband's job to cleanse his wife with the washing of water and the word. That's Christ's job and his alone. He doesn't, we don't do that. We have nothing to do with that. It's not the husband's job to sanctify his wife that she might be holy and blameless. Paul just said, he said emphatically, Christ himself is the savior of the body. He's the savior of husbands and wives together, both as a part of Christ's bride. So I am a part of the bride with my wife. We're both part of the bride. The wife's relationship with God is not mediated through her husband, but through Christ alone. She comes to God directly. I have nothing to do with it. She comes to Christ directly. As an heir together with me of the grace of life. Let me just put it this way. The husband, I'm uncomfortable personally with this language. I think for good reason. The husband is not the priest in the home. He's not the priest in the home. But how that's used oftentimes, I would probably agree. But how it's meant. There is still a real comparison, though, that's being drawn here. And what is the comparison? If we're not supposed to be washing our wives with the word and sanctify them so they can be holy and blameless, that's not our job, then how are we supposed to love them that Christ loved the church? What's the comparison? Well, when Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, of course, that was sacrificial. But he did it so that she might be his own glorious and beautiful bride. Look what it says. He cleansed her with the washing of water, that he might present the church to himself glorious, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. So in Jewish weddings, there was a custom, which Paul is apparently assuming here, where there was a customary bath for washing and cleansing before the wedding, for both the groom and one for the bride. But here we have a picture of the husband cleansing his own bride with the washing of water. Normally, the bride is presented to the groom by her own family. Here, the bride is presented to the groom by himself. Normally, it's the bride who clothes and beautifies herself, maybe especially maybe with the help of attendants. Here we have a picture of the groom providing the bride's wedding dress. Ensuring she has no spot or wrinkle, no physical blemish or sign of aging. So this picture of Christ's love for the church is meant to remind us of a similar picture in the Old Testament where Yahweh took Israel to be his wife. So that's in Ezekiel 16. Yahweh says, When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you. Now, don't worry, I'm not drawing complete parallels here. I'm, I'm looking for some big picture, okay? So it's not, we're just, we're just getting a picture here. Um, I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord Yahweh, and you became mine. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you. We see this picture in Ephesians. He cleansed the church with the washing of water with the word. I anointed you with oil. I clothed you. And with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. And I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. And I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. We think of the bride adorned, beautifully adorned, beautifully dressed as as Kim was singing at our talent night. Beautifully dressed for her husband, right? So here's a bride beautifully dressed for her husband and yet her husband clothed her. And gave her all this, this beauty. Uh, well, uh, yeah, and enabled this. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. So we see this how... Yahweh cleanses, he clothes, he beautifies his bride. But then instead of subjecting herself to her husband, Israel prostituted herself to other lovers. And so Yahweh said because of that, he would abandon 
his wife, Israel, to wrath and judgment, but he made this promise. I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, when I, when I took you to be my wife. And I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed, and never open your mouth again because of your shame, when I atone for you for all that you have done, declares the Lord Yahweh. Brothers and sisters, we're part of this bride, aren't we? We're the ones who have benefited. If we had been among the covenant people in the Old Testament, we would have been those people prostituting ourselves to other lovers. But now, under the new covenant, as we're about to see, God has made a new covenant. He's taken his wife, his bride, back to himself in a covenant she'll never break. That's what we're part of. So God promises he'll take his people again to be his bride, but this time with a new and better covenant, a covenant his bride will never break. God will once again cleanse his bride, but this time he'll cleanse her at a heart level with a washing of water in the word, the word of the gospel, the word of forgiveness through the shedding of Christ's blood. So what do we have in the New Testament? Who's the the groom? It's Christ. Who's the bride? It's the church. A new and restored Israel. And now the bride is never again going to prostitute herself to other lovers. Because one day she's going to be presented by Christ to himself. We picture the day. Holy and blameless. So let's, let's watch the ceremony in Revelation 19. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And the bride has made herself ready. It was granted her. So again, we see this picture of God, of Christ himself, providing for the beautification of his bride. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Here's the bride. Here she is. And as I always like to say, it's the groom's will that everyone stand and and appreciate the beauty and the honor and the glory of his bride. It's coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Then came one of the seven angels and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and he showed me the bride, the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, the glory that God had given her, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. What what a wedding. What a marriage ceremony. And in all of this, what we see over and over again is this. It is the husband's What word might you put there? You don't have to answer out loud, although whatever it is, I'm sure it's correct. It's the husband's delight in his bride. I might just ask husbands, are you faithfully delighting in your bride? And Isaiah 62 says, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. We could say that the church is Christ's glory and joy. How can that be? Are we all that great looking? No, not in ourselves, but Christ has beautified us. And he's beautified us that he might take delight in us as his bride. And so we are his glory and joy, his treasured possession. Christ gave himself up for us so that he might cleanse us and clothe us and beautify us and then present us to himself. And what is it that explains how Christ's sacrificial love can accomplish all these things for his bride. You know the word, right? It's his headship. At all times, assumed and required in the description of Christ's love for the church, you cannot think of Christ's love for the church being effectual apart from his headship over the church. Apart from this headship and authority, the description of his love never makes sense. It's stripped of all its power and effectualness. In a similar manner, 
Husbands, because the husband is the head of the wife, just because, because that's the way God put it together, then that means he is uniquely empowered to love his wife so that she thrives under this love and becomes always more and more his joy. The one he treasures more than anything else on this planet Earth. So, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, woman is the glory of man. Now, in context, I'm a little hesitant to quote that. So in context, it would require some explanation, but I think it is applicable here. Woman is the glory of man. Man is not the glory of woman. So the wife, being the woman, is the glory of her husband, being the man. We read in Proverbs, an excellent wife is the crown of her husband. And I would point out, we don't turn that around and say an excellent husband is also the crown of his wife. We cannot turn that around and it make any sense. And only in our sinfulness would we want that to be turned around. Maybe now we can see more clearly how it's only as the wife subjects herself to her husband that she is enabled to fully enjoy her husband's love. Why is that? Because her husband's love is empowered by his authority and headship. Husbands, this is earth-shaking. Literally. If you, if you think this is big, then you're, you're right. It's, it's, it's revolutionary. Are we beginning to see the purpose, the initiative, the diligence that our headship requires of us? The husband is commanded to love his wife so that she might thrive under this love and in so doing become always more and more his crown, his glory, his joy, which helps us to make sense of what Paul says next. Just so ought husbands to love their own wives as their own bodies. The one who loves his wife loves himself. We hear things about self-love today in psychology, and it's pretty pretty much all anti-biblical. But here's a biblical self-love. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. And your wife is your own flesh, so when you're loving your wife, you're loving your own flesh. Just as also Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. So here's a question for us. If the husband's love for his wife is in some sense a love for himself, let's grapple with that, his own body, his own flesh, himself, if the husband's love for his wife has as one of its motives, why do I love my wife? Well, one big, huge reason is so that she might be more and more my own crown. And my own joy. Well, does that make my love self-serving? Well, we could say that this is so, I grant it to you, only if you are also willing and ready to say that Christ's love for the church is also self-serving. We could say this is so, and yet we won't. Because for Christ, the path, the pathway to presenting the church to himself, glorious and without spot or wrinkle, was a path of suffering and of death. That's what the path was. So husbands, love your wives, as also Christ loved the church. Just so ought husbands to love their own wives, just as also Christ does the church. And so here, I was, I was really excited to say this. Okay, so husbands, loving your wife, there is definitely something in it for you. But what's in it for you is your increasing joy in her. As you love her sacrificially. So Paul uses the words 
nourish and cherish of Christ's love for the church. Each of those words he uses only one other time in the entire New Testament, both in similar contexts. First Thessalonians 2, but we were gentle among you like a nursing mother cherishing her own children. Christ cherished his church. Ephesians chapter 6, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. So we have mothers and children, fathers and children now. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up. Nourish them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So if the wife is to submit or to be subject to her husband in everything, in every area of life, and again, we immediately jump to qualifications, which we mentioned briefly last week. And, and those qualifications are important in certain contexts, very important. But if this is so, then the husband is to seek to make provision for his wife as far as he is able and in dependence upon God in every area of life, empowered as he is by his headship. I just, um, I honestly don't think that God's word on this topic is hardly ever understood in churches today. Anywhere, anywhere. And I'm saying that not to, not to put anything else down, but to wake us up, to help wake us all up. Rare, rare is the book where the husband's headship is celebrated as something good and wonderful rather than being qualified as something awkward or potentially embarrassing. And one thing I would suggest we find is that in some contexts, this idea of headship is celebrated, but not really, because it's not really being celebrated. It's just being, ah, here it is. But we have not, we have not as I always say, and I will say again, we have not grasped its gospel beauty and the wisdom of God in giving it to us. And until we grasp its wisdom, its, its beauty, and God's wisdom in it, at a level, we don't have any right to talk about it. Now, at a level. Or we should always be working towards that. And I'm not saying that I have fully, but we should be working towards grasping the wisdom of God and seeing its beauty. Husbands, I said that usually your headship is being qualified. But husbands, isn't there a part of us, if not a whole lot of us, that wants it that way? We want our headship qualified. Because when we spend all our time qualifying our headship, boy, does it let you off the hook. And boy, does it let me off the hook. It's, 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 it's interesting you know how the sitcoms today mock husbands as babies and doofuses, right, and have for a while? I, I think there's actually a reason for that, and we see that even perhaps in Christian marriages. Because there's nothing like a husband who is the head not being the head. It makes him, more than it could be possible for his wife, look like a child. Um, d- d- does that make sense? Like if I have headship and authority and I am not exercising that, I very naturally begin to look like a child. Whereas my wife, not having headship or authority, it's very difficult for her to look like a child. (laughs) She always looks very mature. When we celebrate husbands, when we celebrate our headship, by striving diligently to exercise it to the fullest, That is the path of self-sacrificing love. Love 
empowered by headship, a headship and an authority that is ours as a gift and a stewardship from God. How far away from this picture of the husband is the picture our culture has given us? And yet how many of us how many of us have in subtle or in blatant ways, oftentimes it's blatant, though we still can't see it, we've been influenced by our culture's militant, pervasive egalitarianism. The church is not just on its heels. The church is actively embracing and promoting the culture's egalitarianism. But if, if the wife's temptation is naturally to subtly manipulate and attempt to rule or simply refuse to be subject to her husband and everything, then what is the husband's temptation? It is indeed to be lazy, at times even childish, and fail to diligently make the most of his headship. And it doesn't matter what we've done for the last however many years of our marriage. What will we do in the future? How will you make the most of your headship? Last week I cautioned the young women to be careful who you marry. This week I caution the young men to be careful who you marry. The reason for this is because just like the wife is commanded to be subject to her husband in everything, whether or not he is loving her as he should, so also, husbands, you are commanded to love your wife, to sacrifice yourself for her, to cherish her as her head, whether or not she subjects herself to you. Because her subjection is not in our power. Marriage, like every other part of this temporal, earthly life, has a goal beyond itself. And that is what enables even an unloved wife to be subject to her husband. That's what enables even a husband whose headship is ignored and disregarded to love his wife Because we are pointing always to the wonderful mystery of Christ and the church. So this is really, really, really neat. After addressing first the wives and then the husbands, Paul, who had no wife and was not a husband, who was single, is moved once again to include himself. He's not like, well, I'm not being, I'm not going to be left out of this, he says. Husbands, love your wives as also Christ loved the church. Just so ought husbands, of which Paul was not a husband, they should love their own wives, just as also Christ does the church. Because, and then Paul says, now let me, let me be a part of this. Because, because why? Because we are members of his body. So Paul understands that for all the beauty of marriage, he didn't need to be married, much less have a perfect marriage. To know and to experience the fullness of that to which marriage points. So even without marriage, Paul could know what it was to be loved, nourished, cherished, and rejoiced over by Christ as a part of his bride. But now, if I do have my own wife, then I must always be asking myself this question, or I should be. Am I loving my wife as Christ loved the church? Is my headship over my wife the constant, ever-present, empowering context for the expression of my love for my wife. In short, am I pointing to Christ, who is the only, and perhaps that should have been your blank, who is the only perfect husband? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, well, the first thing I... What I know we must do is confess to you how far, far short 
we fall as husbands. And in the end, how far we fall, far short we fall as wives, as husbands, as fathers, as mothers, as children, sons and daughters. And yet even as we confess how far short we fall, this isn't, this isn't a, a despairing thing. It's not because we don't long for something that we have found and seen to be lovely and good and wise. We just know it's our sin. It's our selfishness. It's our pride. It's our, it's our buying in to the evil of the cult- culture around us. And so we just confess this to you. We pray, Lord, that you would renew our minds. That you would help us to see And Lord, we might see some beauty this morning, but we know, well, this is so beautiful, we can't actually fully see it. Perhaps until we're standing in your presence. So Lord, help us. Help us as we confess, as we desire true repentance. Help us then to be enabled by your Spirit uh, to walk in the way of wisdom. Help us as husbands to use our headship to its fullest. Loving our wives. May, may, may my wife, may our wives be our ever, the, the more, always the more glorious crown of their husbands. And Lord, may in, in these things we pray that that we are always together as husbands and wives together being brought to see you and your goodness, to love and trust you together as we are fellow heirs, joint heirs together waiting for our inheritance as your bride. Lord, work in us, work in our marriages. Lord, no matter how no matter how broken or fallen our marriages may be, no matter, no matter how good we may have, they are or we think they are, Lord, show us, show us that there is not only hope, but that we are always pointing to something beyond ourselves and also show us that there is always room for changing and transformation. Lord, we pray for this supper that we come to take. And as we come to this, this meal, we are reminded that you gave yourself to beautify us to be the bride in whom you take delight. Thank you for the privilege of being rejoiced over by our husband, by our groom, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.